You guys out there? Hello? All right. Uh, welcome to Mercy Hill. My name's Nick. Thanks, Paul, for um, leading us in that, that opening time. That was awesome. Uh, if I haven't met you and you are new here, um, I'd love to talk to you afterwards if I, if I haven't already. Um, let's get into God's Word, yeah? And that's why we're here, right? I was thinking about this before. It's a, we're coming, we're coming, um, ultimately, this church, I mean, we're about fresh sightings of Jesus, right? You know, we want to see more of Him. We want to see Him in His Word. We want to see Him in one another, and uh, we want to see Him in His glory, in His grace. And uh, so that's what we're going to be after here this morning. I don't actually have a handout for you. I know usually I have one, and so if you really get a lot out of that or appreciate that, I am sorry. Uh Turns out I had a, a difficult, more difficult time with this text than I thought, putting it together last night. And I was like, you know what, whatever time it was, 2 or 3 a.m., I'm not doing this. I'm not doing a handout. Sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> so I will do my best to keep it clear uh, for you as we go along. And, and keep in mind as well, I always post the manuscripts online. It's a little bit complex to get there, but you just have to click on the message itself and you can download the, the full manuscript that I have. Um, so, we're in Luke chapter 2. I do believe we're going to be uh, done with chapter 2 now. We are, we're moving at a brisk pace here. So get ready. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 39 to the end. And if you need a Bible, the ushers are coming by. Love you to have a Bible in your lap, um, especially since we don't have a handout here this morning. So, the way the New Testament works: Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter one, two, verse thirty-nine. Let's uh, read it. Let me pray, and then we'll we'll get in. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, this is Joseph and Mary, remember, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. When they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Verse 52, and Jesus Increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. Amen. Let's pray. God, as I was praying back with the guys who helped set up this morning, just been so impressed by the fact that when we are reading 
the story of your life, the story of this child growing up, the story of this man ministering in Israel. We're not just reading a narrative about some historical person or even some legend about a myth and a hero. We are watching our righteousness being established before God. We are watching the one who has come to fulfill the law on our behalf. The one who would work in himself all righteousness and then grant that righteousness to us by his grace through his spirit. So watching you grow, watching you, Jesus, as a young boy, not just nice little stories to tell our kids. We are watching you combating the sinful nature that takes up residence in every other child that's ever been born. You're pushing back the fallen nature, Jesus. And you're making a new way. A way for new humanity. So thank you. Thank you for the humility that we see here. Thank you for your condescension. Thank you, Jesus, that you have laid for us such a strong foundation of righteousness. Cannot be shaken. My anchor holds. God, would you be with us as we, as we proceed through the narrative? God, would you help us to get fresh sightings of the glory of your Son? I do believe, I do believe, more than anything, what we need is to behold in the face of Jesus Christ the glory of God. That's how your people are transformed. So open our eyes and turn the lights on. We want to see it in His face this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, it's so it's kind of approaching this text. Um, something came to mind that I thought might be a helpful way of introducing where we're going to be headed. Um, when you compare the Christologies of the different gospel writers, interesting things come uh, into view. I wonder if you know what I mean by Christology. Basically, the, the, under, the doctrine of Christ, their presentation of who he is, um, and uh, what he's all about, what he came to do. And each gospel writer kind of highlights something a little different for us. Uh, and I thought it's, it's kind of interesting when you compare the Christology of John in John's gospel versus the Christology of Luke and what we're given here. Um, what I mean is this. Consider John with me and, and where he begins. Where the story of Jesus, the Christ, and the development of the Christ begins in uh, John's Gospel. I mean, he doesn't waste any time, right? It is. It, he jumps right in. He, I, I think, I mean, it's right there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. There's this top-down approach. He's saying, in the beginning of the Word, the Word was God, and now He's here. There's this idea that, like, in John, there's kind of this accent on His divinity, the Son's divinity, the Christ's divinity, right? He doesn't leave any room for doubt or any even real time for development and growth uh, in that regard. It's He is God and He is here. He's come down, heaven down to earth. There's this top-down idea to the Christology in John. That is not, that is not what we get when we come to Luke. It's almost kind of the opposite thing going on here as we follow with, with Luke. What we see, rather than kind of this, this top-down approach, God to earth, Luke is not in any way denying the divinity of Christ, but he is accenting the humanity of Christ. And we're watching this child develop. We're watching the divinity of this child develop in the context of 
or I'm sorry, we're watching the divinity of this child uh, kind of set in the context of his developing humanity. So as we come here, it's not in the beginning it was the Word and the Word was God and now He's in the flesh and He's off in His ministry. It's not that. What we have here in Luke uh, is this slow progression from the bottom up, this kind of grassroots idea where Jesus is first. He, he's first a promise on the lips of, of Gabriel. Right? And then he's a fetus. I mean, I almost feel blasphemous saying that, but he's a, he, he's a fetus in the womb of Mary. So that when she comes into the presence of, of Elizabeth, John the Baptist leaps for joy because Jesus is there. The Christ is there. And we're watching him as a, ministering almost as a, as a fetus in the womb. And then you watch him as, as, as a newborn in an animal trough. And then you continue to follow him, and now he's kind of this, this, uh, this little infant, and they're, they're circumcising him, and they're dedicating him in the temple and other things to Yahweh. And, and then you have him now as a, as a youth, and he's sitting in his father's house. And all of this is taking place before we ever get to his adult ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which is where we're headed to be sure. But there's this slow kind of grassroots development that Luke is highlighting for us as, as he's uh, presenting the Christ to us. It's not so much in Luke that God came down, although that is certainly the point. He's not emphasizing that like John did. Instead, it's more like God grew up, which sounds crazy, right? We're watching God develop, grow as he takes on humanity. I begin this way um, because it seems to me the main point of our passage this morning is, is actually just this, that the Christ of God is on the rise. He's, he's developing. He's, he's coming into His own. We're watching the Christ on the rise. Uh, he is preparing for His office as Messiah, where He will be the anointed prophet priest and king not just to Israel but to the world but it's kind of the slow growth going on now I came to this conclusion because of the way our text is framed I wonder if you noticed it I wonder if you noticed the two kind of summary statements that frame the text there. I don't think Luke wants us to miss that. I think that's why he kind of frames the whole narrative in between with these two summary statements there in verse 40 and verse 52. And I think what will happen, we'll look at those in just a, just a second, but when we bring those two summary statements together, what we are given is this kind of, this kind of guiding idea. This kind of guiding idea that will help us as we make our way through the rest of the text. I think he wants us to see this is where I, what I'm after and all that's in between here. The Christ is on the rise. And so that's going to serve as our kind of compass through the message this morning. But let's look at this. Verse 40 is the first part of the frame. It reads like this. The child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. So there you get this sense. The little, the little infant child is, is growing. He's, he's developing. We're watching him become a, a young boy. And interestingly enough, Luke is the only gospel writer who gives us a snapshot into the young life of, of Christ like this. But then you come down into verse 52. And uh, in case we missed Luke's focus, he repeats it again with even greater emphasis, it seems to me. He says this, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So he's, he's growing here, wisdom, stature, favor, and it's increasing, it's increasing, it's continuing to increase. Now he's 12 years old and it's still increasing. And the next time we see him, he's about 30 years old, Luke says. And he's entering into his public ministry. But the idea, it seems to me, that Luke doesn't want us to miss is the Messiah, the Christ, is on the rise. He's developing, as, 
as, as mysterious as that sounds, to think of God coming in and, and developing. But we'll see why uh, some of that is taking place as we go along. Now, within the um, literary frame, we're given a narrative that supports this main point. That the Christ is, is he's on the rise, he's increasing, he's developing, he's getting ready. As we follow the narrative closely, though, and as I was looking at this and thinking about, thinking about this guiding idea and the narrative that comes in between that's supposed to support it, I, I have to admit, I, w- I was surprised by what I saw. Because here's what, here's what I'm at least reading in the text, and I think you'll see it too by the time we're done. What's surprising to us is not the fact that the Christ comes and that He's on the rise. We would expect that. We would expect the Son of God to come and march His way to victory. That makes sense. He's going to get stronger. He's going to grow. He's going to increase. That's not The fact that that's happening isn't the surprise. What is interesting, though, is the way that He goes about increasing. The way He increases. The way He's on the rise. Because what we come to find, and what I'll make clear for you in this text, is that he's actually on the rise by going low. You probably caught little bits of that. What, what is Jesus doing listening to the teachers of the law and asking questions of them? What is Jesus doing submitting to his parents? and other, I mean, This is the Son of God. So there's these things going on, but what we're seeing is, is he's actually on the rise by going low. He is ascending By condescending, he will be exalted, but only after he's been submitted to all things. He's going to be Lord of all, but only after he's become servant of all. He'll be the author of life, but only after he's given himself up to death. So this increase, this increase that kind of frames our text, what we find in the narrative is that it's coming in the most surprising way counterintuitive way, a way that none of us here in Silicon Valley are prone to understand. We live in an opposite kind of world here, right, in this culture. I mean, if you're going to increase, if you're going to get to the top, how are you going to do it here? You're going to have to, you're going to, have to put your best foot forward, right? You're going to have to try, be the first one to speak about what you've done. You're going to have to show that resume, get that car, whatever it is, to get to the top. But we're watching here something surprising. We're watching the ethics of the kingdom here. It's the opposite dynamic going on. Increase is coming by decrease. And the lower he goes, the higher he will get. So within the frame then of verses 40 and 52, we have the narrative of verses 41 through 51. I'm going to divide this narrative into three scenes for us, okay? And I'm going to attempt to show that Jesus' exaltation is coming by way of his submission. First, to his Bible. That's verses 41 to 45. Second, to his teachers. That's verses 46 to 47. Third, to his parents. That's verses 48 to 51. And then ultimately, I'm going I'm I'm to land this plane by showing us that, that running underneath all of this submission is a submission to his heavenly Father. That's what's keeping all of this together. And there'll be... We'll watch how the decrease of our Savior leads to that ultimate increase. So first, submission to his Bible, verses 41 to 45. I'm not going to read those again, but I'm going to highlight certain things for you. So the son is going to increase. He's going to increase in wisdom, stature, favor, because he's submitted to the Word of God, to the law of God. Now let me... Let me get us in here. Verses 41 to 45 are just kind of an extension of what we've already seen of Jesus and his family. 
We've already seen this family in the verses that immediately preceded that they're all about the law. They're fulfilling the law of God. We read, I mean, it kind of summed up there. The reason why I included verse 39 uh, is because it kind of sums up all that came before. And listen to this. This is, this is Jesus and his family. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So this family is all about the law of the Lord and they are going to perform everything in accordance with it. And as we move into the story in uh, verses 41 through 45, it's just, it's just showing us that 12 years later, this is still the case. This has always been the case. This is still the case. Now it's just in the context of the Passover which is something that, that in the Old Testament uh, the Jews would have been required to come into Israel for, into Jerusalem for. And so what do we see? Well, we're going we're gonna to perform the law here. We're going to keep the law. If God says to do it, we're doing it. And so they're going. And for them from Nazareth, this would have been, this would have been perhaps an 80-mile journey, depending on if they go around Samaria, because we can't stand those Samaritans, right? 80-mile journey, four-day journey, one way. And then you're there for about a week. At least they stayed for the full week, it seems. And then went back. I mean, you're talking about a big interruption in your life. And your plans. But they're doing it. God's, God's Word says it. His law says it. We're going. Submission to the Bible. Important for us is um, the inclusion of Jesus here. As a young, young boy. Twelve years of age. Again, like I said, this is really the only snapshot we get into kind of his, his youth. Uh, you get a few stories around his infancy in other Gospels. This is, this is like all we get, Jesus, in between baby and adult, you know. And so this is, this is special. There's something going on here. He's 12 years old. And in the Jewish culture, from my understanding and research, it's at 13 when they would be kind of held responsible before God. The, the boy would be held responsible before God at age 13. It's when they'd be called like the son of the commandment. And it's when they would kind of become full members of the local synagogue. And so the fact that Jesus before that time is being included in kind of his parents' obedience to the law is important. Showing that the Son, even at an early stage, has come to be submitted to the law of His Father. To submit to His Bible. Now, I don't want to miss, then, the staggering fact that Jesus came to obey the law at every point. It's kind of what I was praying in the beginning. We often, we've got to remember we're not reading just a story about a, a hero or a historical person. What we're actually watching is him coming to fulfill the law, right? For us, as we'll see. But he comes to fulfill the law at every point. And this is just a little snapshot into that larger mission of the Messiah's life. And what's staggering about this is that Jesus himself is the co-author of the law with the Father and the Spirit. He is co-author of the law, and yet he comes not to put himself over the law, but to put himself under it. And he does it for our sake. Because in the covenant, God made with man... It's not God who, who failed on His side of the arrangement, but man, right? It's us. We were the ones who couldn't uphold, who couldn't obey, who turned away, who rebelled. And so, God says, I'm not, I'm not satisfied with this. I'm not satisfied with humanity just running their own way. I am going to bring them back, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to send my Son into humanity, and He will stand as new Adam in their place. He will obey the covenant. He will work a righteousness on their behalf. That's what we start to see uh, in Luke. And here is the reason, then, for Luke's grassroots Christology, in my opinion. 
Here's why Luke is showing us the Son developing and growing within His humanity. There is divinity always the same, unchanging, and yet it's now in the context of developing humanity. Why? Because you and I, sinners at every stage of our lives. You understand this? You and I, you and I, I read this I think last week. We're sinners from the very beginning. Psalm 51.5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I mean this sin thing, it happened immediately because it is our nature. And so the moment, the moment conception happens, sin starts happening. Rebellion against God, a natural aversion to the things of God is taking place in my heart. Children of wrath, that is what we are called. And so, so, Jesus is coming, and if He's going to truly stand in our place, uphold our side of the covenant, work for us a perfect righteousness, He has to walk in total obedience to God through Every stage of man's life. From the womb to adulthood. Came across a quote by Irenaeus, a church father, and he described it like this. He passed through every stage of life. This is Jesus. He was made an infant for infants sanctifying infancy. A child, he was made, I'll, I'll, I'll help you understand the quote as I read. He was made a child among children, sanctifying childhood, setting an example of filial affection, of righteousness and obedience. He was made a young man among young men, becoming an example to them and sanctifying them to the Lord. You see what's going on? He is standing obedient to the covenant at every point, even before adulthood, even before 13, all the way back from the very beginning. There is a new humanity being established in Him, and therefore, it starts in the womb. The author of Hebrews sums up our discussion nicely, I think, when he says this in Hebrews 2, verse 17. He, Jesus, had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, meaning fetus, (laughs) weak, low, Suffering the same things that we go through, the same temptations, teenage temptations Jesus had to overcome. So that the teenagers, when the, whatever it is, when the young girls start to seem appealing or the parents seem overbearing or whatever, they can look to Christ and there's righteousness for them there. If He had to redeem us or to truly redeem us from our infant sins, our youthful sins, our teenage sins, He had to work a righteousness for us at every point. Now, I don't know, as I was thinking about this, you know, there might be some of us, maybe you haven't thought about it yet, maybe you will in just a moment, who, you're dogged by sins of your youth. It just occurred to me, some of you guys have passed. I don't. I might not even know about. And some of the things you did as a 12-year-old or as a teenager or whatever it is still make you feel condemned before God, even though now you're trusting in Christ, you're walking in Him, in Him, and you're like, I don't even want to look back in that closet with all the skeletons. No way. Shut the door. And those things still come at you. And, and, and seeing Jesus in this sort of developing humanity sort of way is critical for you. Because it means you look back at every stage of your life, whether you felt like you were a success or an utter failure, Jesus is working righteousness for you then and there as a youth, as a child, as a teenager, as an adult. A complete, a full righteousness before His Father. That's what He's doing. That's why He's 
rising up and developing before us in this way. I don't want to get too far off of my main idea, though. Putting this scene within the frame of verses 40 and 52, where the guiding idea was Jesus is increasing through decrease. He's increasing in, in, in wisdom and stature and, and favor. What we come to find then is that this increase in wisdom, stature, and favor is resulting from his submission to his Bible, to God's law. That, that going under God's word, going under in obedience is the way up. We should know this. I mean, this is like what people quote all the time in Proverbs, right? That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do you increase in wisdom? You get under the Lord. You go, you go down beneath Him and you start to grow in wisdom. That's what we see in the sun here. Interesting. I, I wonder if you remember how the covenant was broken with, with God in the first place. This covenant that, God, that Christ has come now to, to repair, to bring to, um, uh, to bring to completion for man. Do you remember how it was broken in the first place by Adam? I mean, it was the reach for wisdom and God-like status, was it not? It was as they looked, oh, that is, that is, that fruit, whatever it was, is desirable to make one wise. And if we eat of it, we will be like God. So here, here's, here's what's happening and how, how our culture and human nature is contrary to what's happening with Jesus. We want to look and we, we listen, if you will, to the serpent as he comes in and says, Hey, get it quicker. Get it faster. Get the increase. Get the increase. Reach out. Not in submission to God's law. Leave that behind Leave it behind. You could get it faster. You want the increase? You want the wisdom? You want the favor? You want the stature? Grab a hold. It's right there. Don't come under and talk to me about, you know, God really said this and this and this. No. Especially in our day, right? That's, that's ancient stuff. We're moderns. What are you doing? Listen to an old dusty book. We're beyond that now. This stuff sort of comes at us. Right? And, then, and our, our fallen nature, that's kind of where it goes. Ooh, okay. Get it quicker. Get it faster. We want the increase. What we don't realize is that the shortcut, the shortcut to wisdom, the shortcut to glory is the, 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 the fast track to, to foolishness and shame. Condemnation. Right? They reach to go up and we call it the fall. Jesus isn't going to bite. He's standing in our place. Jesus isn't going to go there. I mean, even in the temptations, right? In the, in the uh, wilderness, what is it? You can have the kingdoms now, Jesus. Get it now. Get behind me, man. No way. No way. We're going to do this in submission to my Father's word. To my Bible. <laughs> now, um, scene number two. Submission to his teachers. We've seen submission to his Bible as the way that he will be exalted. Now these next two are, are, I'm going to deal with a lot quicker. Uh, submission to his teachers now. Verses 46 to 47. In the chaos of the return trip to Nazareth, as they're kind of coming back from the Passover, uh, we could look at some of the reasons why this happens. It actually comforts me as a parent to know that the Holy Family lost their child. Oh, okay. All right. I don't feel so bad that I lost my kids in Nordstrom Rack, you know. <laughs> they were hiding from me. It was not fair. They were in the rack. It was terrifying. I understand the distress of Mary here to some degree. <laughs> Anyways, uh, they lose track of their son in the kind of the caravan that's moving back uh, from, that's going back from Jerusalem to Nazareth. They lose track of him. And we read in verse 46 and 47, after they've kind of been searching for him and find him, we read this. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, 
listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, there is much that that ought to strike us about this scene, but I'm just going to highlight what I think probably, hopefully, Luke wants us to highlight. And and, and that is the humility, the submission, the, the, the decrease of our Savior in these moments. I think we're supposed to see that he's going down, but that's how he's going up. Because we look at this, and I'm saying, wait a minute. What in the world is the Word? The eternal Word of God. The Logos. The Word Himself. What is He doing? Permitting His creatures. They're just here for a blip of time. And they are teaching the eternal Word, His Word. What is this? What an insane scene. What are we witnessing here? God is putting Himself, in a sense, under man. But in so doing, He is showing us the way, the way to increase in wisdom, stature, and favor. He's showing us what humanity ought to have done in the first place, right? where we ought to be. Because here, here's the thing, as I was thinking about this, we don't realize, it's sad, we don't realize the wisdom that we would have in our answers If only we would first sit among the teachers, listen and ask. If we would put ourselves under and grow in that way. We don't don't realize the wisdom that we would have, the increase that would be there if we would come and do that. And I'm guilty myself. I mean, there's something in the fallen nature that says, I will speak before I even hear. I know the answers before I need to listen or learn. I watched it. I've got young kids. I got toddlers, man. This is this is the story of my life. It is let me tell you something. My kids are are brilliant. It's amazing what they already know. <laughs> they don't need me for anything according to them. I mean, they already know how to write their letters. They already know how to rollerblade. They already know how to throw a ball. I try to show them anything. Dad, I got it. I got it. I know, Dad. You know, that's not an A, Chloe. I'm sorry. That's not an A. But everything is, I already know. I don't need to listen. I don't need to sit and be taught. I got it. The way to increase, Jesus is showing us, is coming under submitting it's it's a, it's by decrease it's, it's by learning it's by listening i was reminded of those proverbs that speak to this issue right there's tons of them through the book of proverbs on communication and wisdom and things like that and and consider a few of these uh, putting the matter negatively proverbs 18:13 says this if one gives an answer before he hears it is his folly and shame you hear that Oh, I already know. Well, then you're a fool. You don't know. You don't know. Putting it positively. Proverbs 19.20 Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. So you try to speak before you know. You don't know. But if you listen, if you, if you, if you open your ears for, to instruction, you will grow in wisdom. And the Son of God is coming to kind of be the, the perfect Son of God that we were actually called to be. Children of the Most High, created in His image, growing under Him, and yet we reject Him in every other aspect of order and hierarchy that He has established. Let me ask you this. Can anyone teach you? Who do you let speak into your life? If there is no one, we ought to be concerned, right? If we feel like we're already at the pinnacle of wisdom to where no one can speak into us, then the truth of the matter probably is we're actually trapped in the dungeons of of, of folly. Pinnacle of wisdom! Dungeon of folly. When we think we see, we're blind. When we come to see that we're blind, we're starting to see. Christ, then, as the perfect expression of humanity, increases in wisdom by decreasing 
before others, coming under. He's showing us what it looks like to grow, what it looks like to increase. And it's counter. It's counter to our fallen nature. Third scene there in verses 48 to 51, we see that uh, the, 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 the Messiah, the Christ, is also going to be submitting to his parents. So this exaltation, this increase is coming by way now of submission to his parents. And all these are kind of related, so that's why I'm going a little faster through these second points, second or third points. But here's what we see. The final scene there, Verses 48 to 51 records a discussion that takes place between Mary and Jesus, which we'll look at a little bit more in a moment. But it ends with this stunning line. There's this kind of conflict, like, son, what's going on? Why are you doing this to us? And I don't understand. And then there's this stunning line at the end of it in verse 51 that says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And I thought, again, just get a step back and go, We've got to remember who we're dealing with here. What in the world is the eternal Son of God who was with His Father before the world ever was in glory? What is He doing submitting to His creatures, His earthly parents, who in the verse previously just says they don't understand Him. They don't have the wisdom He has, the knowledge He has, and yet He's submitting to them. We're going, what is that? It's amazing. In so doing, he's again showing us the surprising way of increase. You increase in wisdom, stature, and favor, not the way we think in our fallen nature, not the way of the first Adam. Just take it. Me, my strength. No. It's by decrease. It's by coming under God's design, by coming under and submitting ourselves to his order of things. We live in a culture, right, where um, submission is a dirty word. Am I wrong? Submission is a dirty word on every level, whether you're talking about it to governing authorities. No, we're picketing. No respect for the the king of the land. Whether you're talking about marriage and submission to the the head of the the, the home and and the father, the husband. Whether you're talking about submission even of kids. No, there can be no spanking. There can be no discipline. Let them flower and be who they are. I'm like looking at them going, we don't want them to be who they are. I'm pretty sure we don't want them to be who they are. Yes, we do in some sense. Absolutely. Just strike that out of the recording. Do you know what I mean? It's a dirty word in our culture. We won't submit to anybody here in America. It's like, for us, submission is not the way of life. It's the way of death. But, but, what God is trying to establish is actually the exact opposite. And we see this pictured for us in the people of Israel. I mean, it's, it's profound. The children that were severe and stubborn in their rebellion. You know what happened to them in Israel? You believe this? They were stoned. They were killed. It was insubordination was not the way of life, you know? Like, take it by, by the horns, kid. You can do it. It's like, no way. You're leaving behind everybody else to go be the individual, you know, and could pull yourself up sort of thing. You're dead in Hebrew culture. And the opposite is also true. Those children that honor their parents... Paul says it's the first commandment that comes with a promise. Honor your mother and father. You know what it says? You're going to live long in the land. You try to rise up over the, the, the hierarchy of authority God has established. He's designed into the created order. You're going to die. It's the way of death. If you come under, if you decrease in that way, you will increase. You will find life in a fuller way than you could have imagined. It's increase again by way of decrease. Our exaltation, our advancement is going to come from our submission to God in His order of things. And I was thinking about this church, and this, I love, it's one of the reasons why I love, love this church is we have various layers 
of, of age and, and, you know, diversity in terms of experience. And, and I thought, one of the things this text is trying to get at us is, man, we, we ought to submit and, and learn and grow and come under the elders in our midst. Not just me as a quote-unquote elder, but I mean like those that are aged, those that have been around and experienced more of life than us. We, again, have a culture that prizes youth. And I think this text is saying, hey, don't you just pursue the hip. Don't you just pursue the cool in this church. Uh, because when you do that, you actually very well might be forsaking the way of wisdom, and the growth in, in stature and in favor. Don't just throw away the old and put them in some sort of a elderly home, senior home. They have a lot to offer. And we ought to come under and listen and learn. Now, the fourth heading I said runs under all these scenes. That underneath all of this, his submission to his Bible, submission to his teachers, submission to his parents, his submission to his Heavenly Father, there's this, what I might call a, a master principle that kind of runs underneath all of this and holds everything else together. And it, this principle is what we discover when we consider the very first words of Jesus recorded in Luke's Gospel. Do you know that? I think these are the earliest recorded words of Jesus in any Gospel. Right here. So I don't think it's possible to overstate the significance of what we're about to read. Because up to this point, Luke has given us uh, testimony concerning this child from a number of different sources. Okay, we've heard from Gabriel, we've heard from Mary, we've heard from Elizabeth, we've heard from Zechariah, we've heard from the angelic host, we've heard from the shepherds, Simeon, Anna, we've heard from all these concerning the Son, and now, now in verse 49, the Son speaks for Himself. He gives His own testimony to who He is, what He's come to do. And what we find, He gives us there is, this master principle that will govern his life and death. says this, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? All other points of submission that we see in our text, grounded in his submission to his father. The reason why he goes home from there to submit to his parents is because he submitted to his heavenly father. I must be in my father's house. It's submission at that point that holds together all the others. It's why he has come. Submission to his father is why he has come. He's been sent by, he's the first, if you will, apostle, the first sent one by the Father, and he has come with a mission to please him, to do his will. And we know, as we read this story, as we follow Jesus, that it would ultimately be the Father's will, it would ultimately please the Father to crush him. Isaiah 53.10 Pleased him crush the servant and to make of him an offering for our guilt, for our sin. Here is, we're going to follow now, the extremity of this increasing by way of decrease uh, dynamic that I've been bringing out for us. The Son of God Himself will decrease all the way to to death. He must go down into the dirt before he would rise up into the heavenlies. Within every scene, there are hints towards this coming crisis that the Son of God is going to endure because he's come to do the will of his Father, to please him above any others. That that's the thing running underneath his life, submission to the Father. There are hints throughout all this narrative, every scene, that, there's, that this Son has come for something more. 
than just kind of learning from teachers and submitting to parents and kind of reading his Bible. He has come for something more. He has come to die in our place. He's not just fulfilling righteousness in the positive sense, obeying every command as it's been given by God. He's actually come to take on, to fulfill righteousness in the negative sense, meaning to take on all the curse that we deserve. So He is not only going to obey the Father at every point, He is also going to submit to the Father when He says, now drink the cup of wrath that should be theirs for their salvation. Let me show you some of these hints. In the first scene, verses 41 to 45, I don't think it's mere coincidence that the only real uh, uh, account from his early life that we're given is in the context of the Passover. It's the Passover that Jesus is going with his family to celebrate here. The very thing that symbolized what? Blood of the Lamb over the people, their freedom from slavery, the redemption of Israel, the redemption of God's covenant people, the blood that's coming to free. And so, as we see it there, and he's coming to the house to celebrate, guess what? In Luke's Gospel from chapter 9 all the way forward, the whole thing is oriented around another trip that the Son is going to take to Jerusalem. Another trip. The end of chapter 9, it says, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because He's going to go and die. He knows why He's come. He's going to His Father's house again. He's going to celebrate another Passover. Except He's not merely going to eat of the Passover lamb this time. He Himself is going to be the Passover lamb. He is the one who will give His life over to death for the freedom the redemption of His people. He is the Lamb by whom the sins of the world are taken away. So there's an anticipation of this all the way back in the beginning. In the second scene, verses 46 to 47, what do we have? We've got this, 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 this little boy learning from the, the, the teachers in the temple. And yet, and yet, there's kind of this anticipation of the coming conflict that Jesus is going to have with the Jewish leaders. Because even here, even as a youth, though he is humble before him, there is an indication of his superiority. There's an indication that he is not just a boy here, he is God. It says in verse 47, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. They were amazed. Whoa, something is different about this kid. And this amazement, as we follow Jesus' life, the amazement quickly dissolves, does it not? The, the leaders, the teachers in Israel, at first when he's a boy, unthreatening little boy, they're amazed by it. Soon they're threatened by it. Soon they're, they're, they're angry, they're jealous, the wisdom that the Messiah has, that the Christ has, and the people that are going to Him instead of to them now. So they start to scheme, they start to turn, that amazement turns into conflict. And the favor of man that Jesus at first enjoyed turns into man's wrath, right? As they cry out, crucify Him. And the leaders, the teachers in Israel are turning the people against him, not for him. Hints what this child has come to do right here at the very beginning. In the third scene, verses 48 to 51, we have this kind of elaboration of what Simeon told Mary was going to happen. Do you remember this back in um, verse 35 where Simeon says, listen, this child, I know it's exciting, I know he's awesome, it's going to feel like a sword just driven through your soul. He's going to hurt you. <laughs> because, ultimately, you're going to watch him die. But we're getting a hint of that even here, where in verse 48, she all but rebukes him, right, for what he's doing to her. Because he's submitted to the Father above all else, underneath everything else. 
she doesn't really get it yet. And she comes to him and says, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. I don't understand why you would do this. You're causing me inner turmoil. It's like a sword. It's like the tip of that sword is just kind of already being pushed to the edge of her soul here. What is going on? Why is my boy doing this? Where did you go? You're causing me distress. And here is anticipation of what no mother could bear. Watching her son writhe in agony on the cross, right? There is the full thrust of Simeon's sword through her soul. What is going on? The son has come, ultimately submitted to the father, so that even when God's law turns against him in the curse, even when the teachers turn against him around the cross, even when his brothers and his friends and family don't understand and leave him alone, he's still holding on to his father. That's the Gethsemane prayer. Not your will, but my... Or I'm sorry, not my will. It's the same thing, right? <laughs> they are... <laughs> That's the mystery of the Trinity. Anyways, not my will, but yours be done. But here was the Father's will, right? You're going to come up to the house again, son. You're going to come up to my house. Only this time you're not going to be warmly welcomed. You're going to be utterly rejected. I'm going to kick you out. I'm going to kick you out of my house. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to close now with this. Would Jesus be ultimately abandoned? No. Would decrease, the, the, the decrease into death, even the shameful, painful, wrathful death on a cross, would that be the end for him? No. The decrease leads to an infinite increase, does it not? As the Son of God in the resurrection, <laughs> think about this in terms of stature, wisdom, and favor, of his stature, After the resurrection, God has highly exalted him, right? And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Philippians 2.9 Of his wisdom, Colossians 2.3 In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of his favor. He has become the fountainhead of it for all men. Consider John 1.16 From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Favor upon favor. The favor of God now comes to us through him. He decreased into death to become the author of life for all of us. And one of the most amazing texts is in John 14, 2 through 3. Because what we find is that in his crucifixion, he was kicked out of his father's house, so that in his resurrection, we sinners might be invited in. The favor now streams to us through the Son. His wisdom, His stature, His place in the Father's home coming to us. He anticipates this when He says this, and I'll leave you with this. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. I go to my Father's house by way of the cross in my resurrection making room for you so that now the story of the Messiah is the story of His people by the Spirit. But the Spirit in us, and it could, it's going to hurt. There are going to be times of distress. There are going to be times of trial, times of decrease, going down. But what we have is, in the end, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't fear. Trust in God. Trust in Him, the Son. He will, He will take our decrease and make of it an everlasting 
increase because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. God, thank you. I know I, I gave a lot this morning and I pray, I pray that what people saw more than anything is the glory of the Son. The glory of the Son who holds out His hand even in these moments. It's going to hurt to go the way of the cross. It's going to hurt to follow this child. Submit to the Father, His Father, our Father. Satan's holding out alternatives that seem quicker, seem better, seem easier. Faster ways of increase. God, I'm praying that that every person in this room watching the Son, watching this child walk for them, ahead of them, knowing that He also walks within them, God, would reach towards Him now. I'm praying that we would rest in the crucified and resurrected Messiah. We would decrease in Him so that we can be increased with Him. In Jesus' name, Amen.